Open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We are continuing in our study of the epistles of John. We will spend tonight looking at almost all the rest of the epistle. We have a few verses left that we'll cover, Lord willing, next time we are together and probably do a little summation of the first letter. And then, again, Lord willing, we'll look at the second and third letters of John in future lessons. But tonight what we wanted to look at is uh, the idea that um, we know some things. John tells us in this, throughout this letter that we ought to know some things. Um, and what we're going to look at tonight is the idea that we should know that we have eternal life. And that's the argument that he's making here. We'll look at a little bit that leads into that and um, a little bit of coming out of that, what that means to us, to know that we have eternal life. And, and know the language here that it's, it's very important. It's not that uh, we, we think we might have eternal life or, uh, you know, if, uh, if this and that and, and, and if this and that, and I'm not dismissing the conditions on that, but what I'm saying is that we ought to be confident that we have eternal life because this is a promise that God has made to us. Now, as we mentioned, there are conditions upon us, and we'll talk about those tonight. But the, the, the simple fact of the matter is that John is saying that, that brethren, you ought to know this. And, and, and not only that, not in the rebuke side of it, but the encouragement side of it is this. You know this. You know this. This is fact, that you have eternal life, that these things that you have in God, you ought to know them and be confident in them. So that's what we'll look at some tonight as we go through. But as we mentioned what we titled this lesson is, is to know that you have eternal life. And we're going to start in verse 6 of 1 John 5. And this kind of leads into um, the discussion he just had there, the early part, the earliest part of 1 John 5, and talking about uh, loving the Father and being born of the Father and um, keeping his commandments and how important those things are. And then we get to verse 6. Um, well, back up to verse 5, it says, And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So last week we looked at overcoming the world and how, how that is uh, accomplished in believing in God, believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's how we overcome the world. So now we, the, the discussion is going to lead into verse 13 about knowing that we have eternal life. But he begins here in verse 6 uh, and says a few things. So let's read to begin with verses 6 through 10. As we mentioned, uh, that belief in Jesus Christ he talks about in verse 5. And in verse 6 he says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three things that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. 
The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. Throughout this, there's lots of uh, mention about witness and testimony and the idea here that uh, there are things that bear witness to the fact of who Jesus Christ is. So there are testimonies that John points out through this, and, and that's what we'll look at here first. Testimonies about Jesus Christ. And the first set of uh, witnesses that he mentions here are three. It says there are three that testify. So go back to verse 6. It says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three are in agreement. So that's what we want to talk about first, those first three witnesses that John mentions here. And the first one is water. He mentions there that not only by blood, not only by water, but by blood. So the first one he mentions there is water. So what is he talking about when he talks about uh, a witness of water? Well, I believe what he's talking about here is he's talking about the baptism of Jesus Christ. Go with me over to Matthew chapter 3. There's something that, that happened early in Jesus' life that's very important. And, and sometimes we, we look at it and read it and, and go past it. But do we really get the significance of, of what it means when Jesus was baptized by John, by John the baptizer? Here in Matthew chapter 3, we read Matthew's account of this, beginning of verse 13. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Gal uh, Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, the voice from the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." So you see here, there's something that takes place here that's, that's very important. John points out that, that the water testifies of who Jesus Christ is. So in this moment, in the time here, in uh, the baptism of John baptizing Jesus Christ, it's important to understand that he says, Jesus says, this is done to fulfill all righteousness. John, when Jesus came to him to be baptized, John says, you need, Lord, you need to be baptizing me. But Jesus says, permit it this time, for this will fulfill all righteousness. And you see, immediately after he comes out of the water, it says there, uh, the heavens are open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. So this act here, this, this water baptism, is a witness of who Jesus Christ is. Because then after, immediately after that, it says, this is my, a voice comes from the heavens, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the events that transpire here are important in, in distinguishing who Jesus Christ is. He is the Son of God. So we have that first witness uh, of the water, Jesus being baptized by John the baptizer. The second witness that John mentions here 
is that of the blood. And I think that's a little bit easier for us to understand. Um, and that is the blood that Jesus shed through the crucifixion. How important is that blood of Christ? Well, it's very, very important. It is, um, the Hebrew writer spends a great amount of time talking about how the blood of bulls and calves could never take away sin. But it took the blood of Jesus Christ to be able to do that. And that's how important the blood is in that respect. But there's also the consideration of uh, the blood being a witness to, of Jesus and that testify about who he is. Look over in 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> Beginning verse 17, Peter writes here, he says, And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time, um, <clears throat> during the time you stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers. Verse 19, but with precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised from him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. How important is the blood? It's very important. Verse 20. Foreknown before the foundation of the world, he has appeared these last times for the sake of you. And he's, what has he done for your sake? He has shed his blood. And understanding that foreknown before the, the foundation of the world, this was God's plan. This is how God was going to redeem man back to him. It would take the blood of his son. So the blood bears witness of who Jesus Christ is because this was God's plan. The Hebrew writer also talks about how there is no redemption without the shedding of blood. So it took the blood of Jesus Christ, his shedding of that blood, to redeem us from our sins. And that bears witness of who Jesus Christ is. And the last in this first three that John mentions here is the Spirit. And, who, and of course we know the Spirit of God that he's talking about here. And this is the most reliable witness um, that could be put forth. Why? Because it is the Spirit of God. What better witness might you have of who Jesus Christ is than the Spirit of God himself? Um, as we mentioned, uh, let's, go, let's look at Luke's account here for a moment. Um, when we th think about the, the, um, the testimony of the Spirit, and we, as we read there a minute ago, the events that were taking place at the baptism of, of Jesus. Look in Luke's accounting in chapter 3 and verse 21. It says, Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came down out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So here's the Spirit. So the Spirit was present at Jesus' baptism. So that bears witness of who Jesus Christ is. So the Spirit bears witness because he was there at the time. 
So he can be one who bears witness. Remember, when we're talking about a witness, we're talking about someone who saw the things, who witnessed the events that were happening. In a court of law, that's the person you call to the stand, someone who's, who was there, who saw and can testify that the things that they saw. And so the Spirit here is testifying that he saw Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been talking about the, the Holy Spirit and his role in, in um, various things that he has done over time. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, we made mention about the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So if we, if we want a, a reliable witness to who Jesus Christ is, he was there at his baptism, and he's the one who raised him from the dead. So the things that he is uh, uh, testifying of, he has witnessed because he was there. And so as we're putting all these things together, we see how, uh, how the evidence is overwhelming. If you were in a court of law building the case for who Jesus Christ is, we've got some pretty overwhelming evidence here that we're building. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Again, we made mention of this, and, and Brother Larry brought this, this passage out this morning and as we were talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit, uh, um, he not only is, is uh, he witness to these things about Jesus Christ, but then he's going to reveal the gospel to these men who are then going to go out and preach what? That Jesus Christ has been crucified. That's what Paul says there in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I declared, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the gospel message. Well, how did he get that message? Verse 10 of chapter 2, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of the man except the spirit of the man, which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which these things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So here again is more evidence of uh, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. He is leading Paul and these others in what they are preaching, and they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching Jesus Christ crucified. Go back to 1 John. So those are pretty strong witnesses. Those first three that he has lined up, those are pretty strong. But there's other witnesses. Let's pick back up in our reading in verse 9 of 1 John 5. It says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has, has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. So we have those first three, the water and the blood and the Spirit, now there's some other testimonies that John brings into this. And the first is that is the testimony of men. Now it's interesting that he brings that into this, isn't it? Why would he bring in the testimony of men? Men are, as we've pointed out, men are fallible. 
Why would he even bring this in? Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, think of this as uh, in a court of law, if we're building a case, if we're mounting up the evidence in order to persuade a jury that the things that we are saying are true. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, he says, For I deliver to you, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, beginning, For I deliver to you, as of the first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So there, he's setting out here the very simple truth, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 4, And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So see, there's the gospel message right there. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom, uh, of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as if it were to, un, uh, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So see... If we rely on, again, in the court of law, if I were to bring one uh, fallible man here to testify that he saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, that might be, not be enough to, per, to sway the jury I'm trying to sway. But if I bring Cephas and the Twelve and 500 other people that saw him, you see how that all adds up? See how that mounts up? So not only do we have the um, the testimony of the blood, the water, and the spirit. But even men saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And that's important evidence, and that is strong evidence. Over in 1 John again, um, verse 1 of chapter 1, John states this from the beginning. How important it is that he as a witness is speaking these things to his readers. First uh, John 1, 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld with our hands concerning the word of life. You see how John sets out by saying, I saw him. I was there with Jesus. And he was there for a lot of the things that we've already talked about. John was there. He can bear witness to these things. That's very important in the testimonies that are being given here. Um, while this great number is credible, and, and we were, if we were to bring this to a court of law, that would be very um, swaying for the jury, there's still a witness that is greater. And that is, of course, the witness of God. As John mentions here, back in our reading over in 1 John 5, um, he says there that, um, uh, down in verse 9, if we, if we receive the witness of men, so here he's, he's stipulating here, if we're going to receive the witness of men, and we just went through all those who saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead, he says um, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his son. So, we have the witness of God himself. He was present at Jesus' baptism, as we mentioned. He was present also at his transfiguration, 
Why do we know that? Because in both of those texts there, we won't go, go to those. But you can see that in both of these instances, there's a voice that comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Guess what? That's the testimony of God. That's him testifying who Jesus Christ is. This is my beloved Son. Before his crucifixion, let's go to John chapter 12. John's uh, gospel. Here's another instance where God speaks of who Jesus Christ is. John chapter 12, beginning of verse 27. Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Jesus is saying, should I just back off of this? Should I not go forward with this, this terrible death that awaits me, that's before me? He says, no, this is the reason I came. This is the reason that I am here. He says there in verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. And, and then note what it says. There came, therefore, a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The multitude, therefore, who stood and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. So there's, there was those witnesses there that heard something. It was confusing as to what they heard. But as John records here in his gospel, it was the voice of God. He says, I have glorified your name and I will glorify it again. It's pretty overwhelming evidence that's being built up here about who Jesus Christ is. There's one last one here that John mentions, and that is of the believer, the believer himself. It says there in verse 10, back in 1 John 5, the one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. That's pretty interesting that he says. Back over in John chapter 7, let's look at this. What does that mean, he has the witness within himself? John chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. It says, But when it was in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews therefore were marveling, saying, How is this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know uh, the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. See how important that is in, in understanding what we're talking about here? Verse 17, if any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching. If we're willing to do God's will, the more we know about what God's will is. That may sound a little oversimplistic. But look what is mentioned in um, Hebrews chapter 5. This is a familiar, should be a familiar verse to us. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, it says, But solid food is for the mature. Now in the context here, the Hebrew writer is chastising his audience here for, for needing the milk of the word, needing the, the first principles, and not having progressed past that. And he says, you need someone to teach you again the elementary things. 
And in verse 14, he says, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You see, as we mature and as we study and learn and, and, and know more about God's will, what's inside of us helps us to discern good and evil. We have more of a chance to discern what is good and evil if we have practiced these things, if we have put into practice what we have learned. And if we learn more and more and put that into practice and learn more and more and put that into practice, then we train our own conscience. And we can rely on that. Now, we have to be careful. We have to be careful in understanding that our conscience has to be trained. It can't be a a novice. It can't be um, one that comes out of the world and starts listening to their own voice. The voice of God has to come through. But as it does, it trains our conscience. So that then we become part of this mix as part of the testimony of who Jesus Christ is. How is it that I know Kevin? How how does Kevin know Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Well, because I've studied it for a while. And I study it, hopefully, (laughs) for the rest of my life. And so my conscience gets trained. Bill's conscience gets trained. Larry's conscience gets trained. Stephanie's conscience gets trained. So that then we become witnesses. Not that we have seen these things for ourselves, but that we have these in our own life, in our own faith. So we're added to the mix of who Jesus Christ is. Again, we take caution with that one because we have to make sure that what we say and do is in alignment with God's will. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of our time. So let's go back to to 1 John 5. So he has laid out the, the, the case here. He, John has <clears throat> pulled these, if we will, to use the courtroom example, he's pulled these witnesses together to testify as to who Jesus Christ is. So what is all that testimony, what does all that tell us? Verse 11 and 12, let's read those again. And the witness is this that God has given us eternal life, and this is the life that is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So what do all these testimonies tell us? It tells us that God has given us eternal life. Because what is the gospel message? Jesus Christ and him crucified? What does that mean to us? It means salvation to us. It means we have the opportunity to be saved from our sins and to have eternal life. And as we mentioned, this is a promise made by God. And we know that it's true. And we can wager all that we have that it is true. That we have eternal life. Those of us who believe in God. And it is only available in his son. So the the, the witnesses that he has brought forth testify as to who Jesus Christ is. Without him, we don't have a chance of eternal life. So far, John has presented some things. He's presented these many testimonies. Testifying to who Jesus Christ is. He's presented 
that God sent his son for salvation. We've, we've seen that. John has presented that um, the acceptance of this fact that God uh, sent his son for salvation gives us access to the Father and to the Son. We have access. We have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And, and in rejecting it, if we reject all that, then we don't have fellowship, neither with the Father or with the Son. And that's very important. And again, John is writing to refute those Gnostics who, are, who deny aspects about Jesus Christ, either his humanity or his deity. If you deny his humanity or his deity, you have no fellowship with him. And in so doing, you have no fellowship with God the Father either. But all these things tell us that God has given us eternal life. And so why then is John writing? Let's read verses 13 through 15. And this gets to the crux of what we're talking about in this message. Verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have, uh, which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which, which we have asked from him. So why is John writing this? First of all, let's note um, who he's writing to. He's writing to those who believe in Jesus Christ. He says there, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. All that we've talked about, all the testimonies, all the, the evidence that John has put forth about who Jesus Christ is from the very beginning in verse 1. That which we have seen, that which we, we have touched, we have heard this man, Jesus Christ. He's writing to those who believe who Jesus Christ is. And he writes that they may know that they have eternal life. As we said in the introduction, not think so, not I guess I have eternal life, not, um, well, maybe I'll stumble into eternal life. He's writing that they may know that they have eternal life. There's some other things that John, in his writings here, says that we know. He says that we, we know him. We know Jesus Christ. We know that we are in him. We know that we have passed from death into life. We know that we are of the truth and we know that he abides in us. And each one of these, John says that we know these things. So it's not just that uh, we know that we have eternal life, which is very important. There's other things that he's writing here that we may know. Not think so, not I guess so. I know. When do we know that we have eternal life? Here's some things that he says about that. In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says that we know when we keep his commandments. Similar to that in, in verse 5, when we keep his words. So see, here's the qualifying thing. Here's the responsibility that we have. Yes, we know that we have eternal life, 
But there's some conditions on our side, isn't there? We keep his words. When we love the brethren, from chapter 3, verse 14, and other places, we know that we have eternal life. We know these things when we love the brethren. When we believe what the Spirit has revealed, we know uh, we have eternal life when we confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and believe that Jesus Christ, uh, that Jesus is the Christ. So all these things are on our side of the ledger, if you will. Here's the things that, here's what we have to keep. Keep his commandments, love the brethren, believe what the Spirit has revealed. Look in chapter 5 and verse 20. This is kind of a summation uh, of what John has been talking about. Chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. You see, eternal life is a, is a wonderful thing and a blessing and a promise from God. But it is conditional to what we do during our time on this earth. So knowing all this, knowing uh, and having um, the argument so clearly laid out for us that John has put um, before us, knowing all this does a lot of things for us, but in verse 14 and 15, he talks about how this gives us a certain amount of confidence. In verse 14, he says, And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whenever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So knowing all this gives us a certain amount of confidence. And it's a confidence that allows us um, to ask anything according to his will. And that's very important. The things that we ask have to be according to his will. John says here that he grants those things. Look over in James for just a moment. James chapter 4, similar language here, verse 3 and verse 15, James 4 and verse 3. It says, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You see, if we're asking God for things for our own pleasure, he's not going to grant those things to us. If we're asking the things, look at verse 15. It says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. So see, that's how our asking ought to be um, done when we ask God for things. If the Lord wills. Combine that with what we were talking about, what John is talking about over here. And it has to be done according to his will. Not for our own pleasure. Not for our own selfish reasons, our selfish desires, but in accordance with the will of God. Back over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 22, it says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? 
because we keep his commandments and do the things which are pleasing in his sight. You see, there's the answer to, to all this. Whatever we ask, we receive because we keep his commandments. We must keep his commandments if we want our prayers to be heard. If we want our prayers to be answered by God, then we have to ask according to his will. I don't cite a lot of commentaries, um, but this one I thought was pretty good. Uh, This from Albert Barnes. He says, our prayers must be in accordance with what God has declared that he is willing to grant. You see, God has told us what he's willing to do, what he's willing to, to give to us. And so when we pray, it has to be in accordance with what he's already told us about our prayers. His answer will be limited by what he sees to be best for us. So his, we, might pray, we might pray for something that is in accordance with God's will, but then he gets to decide if it's the best for us. And it's consistent for God to bestow upon us. Is it consistent for God to, just, to bestow whatever it is that we're asking upon us? Guess what? That's for God to decide. So our duty is what? We keep his commandments. We pray and ask things according to his will. And then we leave the rest to him. He'll be the one to decide if it's good for us and if, we, if he needs to fulfill that prayer. If it's in accordance with his will. If it is um, consistent with what he would bestow upon us. That's his side of the ledger. Our side is to keep his commandments and to ask things according to his will. So laying out the case here that John has, he's laid out a case and he's brought these these testimonies forward. And he has said because of this, we know that we have eternal life. That's a promise from God. And then he tells us because of all that, that there's a certain level of confidence that we should have. And that we should be able to ask God the things according to his will. We know what God's will is. He has told us what it is. He wants us to love the brethren. He wants us to serve him. He wants us to spread the gospel. All those things that he wants us to do. So that's what our prayers should be in alignment with. Aligning our prayers with the will of God. I hope this has been encouraging to you. As I said, we will... um, finish up our um, study of the first John next week Lord willing and we'll, we'll go on from there uh, as we have opportunity we offer an invitation at the end of our time together as we always do if you need the prayers of the congregation need something in your life that that you need help with that you need help from the brethren you can let that be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you